With the beginning of a new year, and a new decade nonetheless, now is the perfect time to reflect on what has changed in healthcare and what changes need to be made. On today's episode of The Break Room, we're talking with Sean Morris, CEO of Privia Health, and looking back on 2019 to see what lessons we've learned and looking ahead to 2020 as well and all of the challenges and opportunities that lie before us. Sean Morris is a seasoned industry leader focused on building a physician organization that is transforming the healthcare delivery experience, both for patients and physicians. He brings his expertise and insights to our discussion of interoperability, healthcare waste, and healthcare consumerism. Toward the end of the episode, he offers some novel predictions around what to watch out for in 2020, so make sure you stay tuned until the end. All right, without further ado, let's get on with the show. On today's podcast, we're talking with Sean Morris, CEO of Privia Health. Sean, thanks for coming on today. Great. Good to be here. So there's never a dull year in healthcare, uh, and 2019 was certainly no exception. One of the real standout moments for me was reading a landmark study that was published in JAMA, and it revealed about 25% of healthcare spending, uh, you know, nearly $1 trillion annually is waste. So I'm wondering, what does this tell us about how we can be more efficient and more effective as a country when it comes to healthcare delivery? I think the, um, you mentioned it was a surprise or I think um, just been in the business for 25 plus years. And one thing I have learned is there's in healthcare when it's almost down 20% of our GDP of a country, that um, there is no doubt it is highly inefficient. Um, I would even say, um, even though I still think um, we have the best healthcare in the world, it's probably highly ineffective. And for, I think, like I said, I think we all agree that it's way too expensive and quality is almost impossible to ascertain, especially from a kind of from a consumer perspective. And I'd even say from, you know, from a provider perspective, because. You know, you've, you've heard me say before, he who has the gold makes the rules. And, and um, you know, and every payer has a different way. Even though diabetes is diabetes, they all, they all have their way of, you know, did you do a quality job? Therefore, if you pass the quality standards, we're going to, if you're contracting for total medical costs, which is obviously the way we like to, um, is there a... You know, did you get through the right hoops in order to, I guess, save some of that waste? So, and, and you get some share of that. So, the um, I don't know that it was a is a should be a surprise, but there is no doubt lots and lots of waste in the in the healthcare our healthcare ecosystem here in the U.S. The um, I think um, it's all about you know can you as an organization you know. Have partners have, you know, have um, you know uh, the, the ability to you know align around incentives around being cost effective, improving or at least maintaining quality, and we all know with a if there's a, a trillion out there, you could probably focus on you know a hundred different things. And the key I think there is how do you prioritize those in bite-sized pieces? Have a strategy to get to them. Um, you know, motivating the individuals, which we believe the physician is the, the key to that. And, um, 
And, you know, they, I believe they, they're, and it's proven with our growth and our success over the last couple of years, especially, is that um, you, you have to have a partner to do it. It's, you know, there's only so many successful ACOs in the country today. Um, there's a, and, and, you know, some of them have a little bit of model that are the successful ones than we do, but there's a partner involved that's helping them set those priorities, get that data. They're some form higher. We're, we're highly enabled from a technology perspective, but um, you got to have a governance that gets to that and transparency around sharing data and aligning incentives and so forth. But, um, you know, it is, um, it's critical that you have a partner that can really do that, do those things we just spoke to. And at the end of the day, what I like to say is improve the well-being of the physician, of the provider, where they can spend more time doing what I think they want to do and what most people feel they should do is with, with their patient and that consumer of healthcare. Absolutely agree with you there. And I think that speaks to a follow-up question I'd have. Even the researchers said that we could only probably get waste down to about $200 billion a year. Mm-hmm. So there's never going to be a perfect system. Uh, but as you mentioned, doctors are really uniquely equipped and positioned to uh, combat that waste and to drive efficiency. So I'd like to pose a question to you. Uh, how, what tools do they have at their disposal? And what tools do they lack that would, uh, you know, help support them given that unique positioning? You hear me say a lot, they need tools, technology, and talent. I, I don't, um, you can say I'm in a lot of order. You gotta have the talent before I think you get the other two. Um, here, you know, within Privia, the, I think the, the, you, you know, just the way we've built our company, um, you, you have to, those fundamentals of practice management, um, always striving to be excellent, knowing we're never gonna be, we're never gonna get there, but always striving to be, you know, continuously improving. And if you don't do the blocking and tackling of maybe some of the, I don't wanna say it's boring, but some of the things that people don't like to talk about, you know, the rev cycle and scheduling and all those things that make a practice efficient, you don't get those things done well, you never get the attention of the provider to talk about value. So getting into the tools of, which you just we, we spoke briefly on a minute ago, how do you, you know, cost transparency and building a almost like a strategic plan down at the, um, the, the neighborhood level of a pod with doctors setting, you know, setting some goals with a, you know, with the physicians locally in that community. Because, you know, communities are one side of DC is very different from the other side and really different from South Georgia and Houston, Texas and so forth. So depending on that payer mix, depending on the, um, you know, the population needs, it's going to, you're going to have to kind of, for lack of a word, attack that differently. But it really gets down to, you know, you have to have access to data. You've got to get it in a method or in a, you have to get it to the provider at the point of care and really influence workflow. And, you know, we tend to do that with, with governance at the pod level. We do that with um, trying to provide the most autonomy we can to the provider. Um, who's cost efficient? Who's the, you know, quality providers? What's it cost to send a patient from here to there? And there's, a, there's just so many different pieces of information flowing. We have to do that in a way that is 
that it's most, I guess, the most friendly to work into the workflow of the provider. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer, and there's you know there's lots of health plans, and there's lots of um, single, um, you know, kind of standalone solutions that just don't fit into a workflow. And and I just got back from J.P. Morgan, and there was hundreds, if not thousands, of really cool stuff, but they still believe that a doctor or a care team is going to swivel chair out of a platform for lack of a let's call it the technology piece of the platform to go turn around and do something else and and there will be people that do that because it'll be cool it'll be yeah but the vast majority of you know physicians and care teams are super busy and that's just tough to do and um so i you know that thinking through that whole you know you know hopefully best in breed or at least close and, and work them into a into the technology, into the governance, into the things we need to do to build a platform that allows kind of back to what I said as I close that last question out for that, you know, with a, where the care team and where the doctor can, you know, spend time with the patient, make decisions, and, you know, in, you know hopefully improve quality and reduce cost and give the patient a better experience. And then hopefully the doctor and the care team's having a, it's a, you know, it improves the experience that they're having. So it's, it, you know, it's data, it's partnership, it's governance, but you have to be able to deliver that in an efficient manner, through, you know, which we choose to do through technology. You know, I think that the, you summed it up perfectly right there at the end with just efficiency. Efficiency begins with workflows. It trickles all the way up to uh, spending in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars. So. I want to pivot to a different type of efficiency, and that's interoperability. You know, last year at HIMSS, the talk of the town was around interoperability. So I want to pose a question to you. Do you think this conversation is still ongoing, and why is it so important for healthcare providers and patients? You know, if you think about to the beginnings of, and, and you know, we we're a little over a five-year-old company, and we with you know, the exception of one medical group, we sit all on one technology solution. And our ability to ingest, digest data, put it back out, um, you can't, you wouldn't believe the, 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 for lack of a word, the vendors trying to sell us solutions just to do that. Um, I'll call them competitors. Some of our competitors sit on 90 to 100 different EMRs, not a not a technology solution, just an EMR, and to get, they spend a lot of their time and dollars just accumulating data to, to just try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we, by making that decision years ago, um, it's, um, we don't spend the dollars that are, that, that has to be done. So we've, by definition, are much more interoperable within Privia. Now, what do we do outside? So, I mean, I think we are the heaviest or the, the largest user of APIs of within the with anything within Athena. I think we're using to date upwards of 385. Um, to you know, that boils down from you know an HL7 coming out of a health system to a pharmacy company to you name it to feed this uh, you know feed the technology platform to determine what should be a priority how should we be treating a certain disease and get that back into the workflow of the physician where where we are not using or don't have the ability to use an API you know we're, we're using RPA technology 
I think an example of that would be going to a pair that we we may not have an API to, um, and extracting eligibility and claims data, pulling it down through robotic all you know automated processing, and populating our uh, you know our technology. So there's just I think any you know that's efficient. That's a you can take a person that. That's probably not the most exciting job for that person, and put them on something that's a little more exciting, better use of time, and it's and it's more accurate at the same time. So, I think we're running about seventy of those different processes today, wow. um, which is mostly focused on the administrative side of our business. Whereas now, we're I would say we're more inward focused to the provider. How can we use technology such as that to make it? easier inside the four walls of the practice so we're really looking for those opportunities but interoperability i think it's going to be it's going to get better and i think if we don't we'll be regulated into it so i would it's you know it's not a probably a prediction for the next 12 months but if i think we have to as a as a country as providers if we don't do that we spent gosh trillions of dollars and and it's still not connected. So we, it's, um, we have to be able to figure that out. You know, the point you made at the end there that we might end up just being regulated into it if we don't take a more proactive approach uh, leads sort of to my follow-up question, which is, you know, how can federal regulations and laws either advance or impede progress when it comes to interoperability? Well, I, you know, I think generally speaking, we'd rather never be regulated into something if we could come to come together as as a, I guess the different stakeholders in the healthcare system and say you know what do we need and what do we don't need I mean there is there is definitely um, different stakeholders organizations that believe the data the patient data they hold within their system is theirs we don't take that stance it's actually the consumers the patients and they should it should be theirs. Uh, and it, it's um, so I think um, the current administration, um, the current you know, within CMS, and I believe you know they're saying hey, it is the patients, and and I think almost the threat of that, of which it, it's you know causes people to step back and go, okay, how do we, how should we solve this problem? And I'm I'm just a believer we sh- you know we should solve it amongst ourselves, or we're not going to be allowed to. And what I've um, and in previous lives, when it comes to that, typically you may not like the answer you get, and it's um, now and that may be what happens to us. But I, I hope we can you know come together as a as you know state various stakeholders in the healthcare system to do that. You know, I think it's really interesting the way that you tied that to ownership of um, you know patient data mm-hmm. and how it belongs to the patients mm-hmm. as consumers. And that reminds me of uh, uh, some headlines I've read uh, in the new year that have, you know, looking back, called 2019 the year of the patient. Um, so I'm curious, would you agree with that? Um, and, you know, and what, what more work needs to be done for patients as healthcare consumers? The last few years, just within the benefits especially of... Um, active and working employees of um, various companies, we all are paying more of the first dollar coverage. 
um, through high deductible plans. And, and, and the, there's a big discussion now about transparency. It's all, you know, we're, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about it. And I do believe it's coming. I, that would probably, you know, it'd be something I would probably think this year we'll see a lot more of. I'm an advocate of it. I mean, it definitely changes the, you know, um, the, the, I guess, scope within especially certain states of, you know, you we may have a better arrangement than someone else. But at the same time, if we can take better care of that patient, reduce cost, do it with quality and meet hopefully and exceed their expectations as a consumer we should be rewarded for that you know what and if we if that's the grounds we compete on that we should be happy to do so but i think that's what it's getting back to um, and I, but i think it we're probably scratching the surface on consumerism and i mean if you think about the society we live in is you know um i think the the you know, it's kind of not, you know, a year or two ago, you might order something on Amazon and be happy to get it in a day or two. Now it's, you know, you get it in two hours. You can get, I think I just heard you, groceries within two hours. I'm not sure I've ever needed groceries in two hours, but um, but that's the world we live in. And it, and it, it and I think it's just going to continue to move that direction. As a, And I, the organizations that can at least begin to kind of think about, solve some of those um, expectations, because I do think healthcare is still a pretty low bar. And if we can meet a patient where they are by meeting the provider where they are in that ecosystem of moving to value, I think um, we, will, we will be much more advanced than our competitors. You know, I really like the language you have with uh, meeting patients where they are and meeting providers where they are. And, you know, given healthcare consumerism, we've seen a lot of focus on meeting patients where they are, whether it be virtual visits, patient portals, similar tools to just make for an overall more seamless experience, more convenient experience for the patient. However, I think that overshadows um, meeting providers where they are. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you know, what does this phrase mean to you? Um, And, you know, if 2019 was the year of the patient is you know, perhaps 2020, the year of the provider. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, we say meeting the provider where they are a lot, and I think it gets back to healthcare is local. The, um, the, when I say local, I mean kind of local almost down to the, probably the community, but if you just kind of even pull up from there to the sub-geography of a state, it gets into... Um, the, the whoever's funding healthcare within there, um, it, within the geography, what you know, what, what industries are there, how the benefits made up, um, what percentage of market share a certain payer may have, and and what type of payment arrangements they're moving toward. So as we all know, some payers are much more value oriented than others. Um, some seem to be pretty happy with a fee-for-service arrangement, especially when those providers may be delivering a lot of value. Being paid in a fee-for-service way as a provider, and you're delivering lots of value, you're probably not be re- being rewarded for all that value creation. It could be staying with the payer, or they could be translating it to benefits, lots of things going on. So understanding where that provider is, where that community is, where it's headed. I think another example would be Medicare Advantage. As we all know, Northern Virginia, probably the most 15% penetrated from a, from a Medicare Advantage perspective, but if you go two or three counties out, 
different story. You go to Texas, very different story. Florida. So understanding kind of where the for lack of the market geography is on its move to value, understanding the density of value within a provider's practice and where they are. I also believe, you know, on that road to value. And, it, and, I, and I think um, where they are in their career really affects it also. A young physician that's, you know, a few years out of, out of um, their training and building a practice might tend to attract a young population. Very different from a, a provider that's 30 years into their practice and their patients have been with them for those 30 years, aged with them, they know them very well, um, probably have more comorbidities, um, and you know, maybe even have a more favorable tolerance to a risk type situation of doing, um, of, of contracting. Because they, just because they're, you know, they've, for a lot of different reasons, they, they know their patients well, they, um, not that saying the other ones wouldn't, but they just, they, you know, they may even, they've, uh, from a financial perspective, they've had their kids, their kids are in college, they're, um, they are, towards the end of their career, they're, they're just probably more risk tolerant. So I think they're, all that goes into a, you have to meet them where they are. And I think that does reflect in, of how do you meet the patient where they want to be met, which that's, that's where we're headed. Yeah. And, you know, gets into virtual visits and don't waste my time and I want it now and some of those things we don't like mm -hmm. but you know that if we're going to be successful I believe and and actually be attract patients and providers we're going to I think that's what we have to do we really learn to meet patients where they want to be met and that makes us uncomfortable but you know as we all know the uh, success sometimes is being successful when we're uncomfortable so in 2019, CMS launched Pathways to Success. Uh, so I'm curious, how are accountable care organizations adjusting to meet these changes? And what opportunities are there under the new basic and enhanced models of Pathways to Success? Generally speaking, we definitely agree with the direction. Um, CMS is taking learnings from the Medicare Advantage program, taking learnings from early, you know, next gen, um, taking, you know, the MSSP, all the different, I guess, variations. And they, they believe that, which we would agree with, uh, um, um, the, their data would show physician organizations, physician-led organizations do are the leaders in the ACO program. Yep. Um, so what are, what are some of the, you know, and, and then how do you incorporate some of the learnings from Medicare Advantage and continue to, I guess, um, lead physicians into risk, reward them producing value? So generally, I guess, an overview of what. So we've applied for both. Um, I think each organization, and there's hundreds of ACOs in the country, will make a decision you know, where they want to fall. And what this does, it, all these, they don't allow you to stay in non-risk situations. You have to advance to the program or fall out. So, um, and we think that's a, you know, that, that's, that's a, that's probably should be done that way. I, I would say we support the um, CMS direction to this. We'll make our decisions on the, based on geography. We were, up, we were roughly 5% of the MSSP savings for all of CMS 
the Privia Health ACOs produced that last year. So we're seeing success in every 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 market within every ACO that we filed. Um, you know, some are larger than others, so they're producing more savings. But we're I'm very kind of happy with where we are. But we'll make some decisions in Virginia. We have decided to go enhanced, which is full upside downside risk on on the population we'll have here next year. Well, I guess well now it's 2020, so we're into the program. So um, and I'm happy for that decision involved. Um, all the physicians in the decision, um, and we're we're very pleased with the decision that was made. Now we've got to perform. Um, however, but um, it's um, I think the programs generally are working the direction we would we would like them to. We'll just make those decisions as more information is available. So now that these are underway, um, I'm curious. How do you think that these various new programs will foster independence and reward outcomes for providers? But also, what challenges do you think providers are going to face? What disruptions to their day-to-day uh, -day do you think they'll encounter as these roll out? I think it gets back to the more complicated these programs, especially when you're taking downside risk. You definitely need a partner that understands risk, risk from an insurance type perspective. I think, you know, actuarial risk, how to build um, medical management programs across various cohorts from active, healthy to you know, comorbidity, even end of life. So you under, need to understand that um, from a provider perspective. I'm having a partnership with someone that understands just risk, and not just generally, but across those different cohorts. Cohorts. I think um, you need the ability to uh, drive those different and determine priorities and drive those to the point of care in a way that the provider can, you know, kind of. Work have some autonomy and work with others in their workflow and see success. It's a, otherwise you could and, and I'd even say have a governance model that you know that is um, that it's physician led, um, physician to physician speaking and transparency. They they know where people are, um, and then and then at the end of that aligning incentives for those that that. Um, produce results should be rewarded um, and we all know that's not created equal across a large group and you have to build attribution you never want to take risk on a small attribution you want it to be actually sound so just so I think there are um, there will be people just like in the in the programs in the past that you know it's a kind of a bell-shaped curve so the ones at the far right are doing really really well and some of the ones at the far left probably are not doing well and don't stay in the programs well, we'll begin to find out how that all plays out in 2020, so something to look forward to. Um, so going, looking back, in 2019 and, and several years before that, the healthcare industry has seen a ton of uh, M&A activity. So many are kind of pivoting now, though, and I'm hearing that the next big thing is novel partnerships or uh, call them strategic alliances. So what are these new arrangements and how do they improve over you know typical M&A activity? It's interesting I was um, actually reading this morning where you when you think about a partnership historically you'd think it would almost be two different organizations coming together mm -hmm. and maybe it is a, a system and um, a provider organization, physician organization such as ourselves 
and, a, and like a health first like we did last year. Very novel, very innovative. A lot of systems are interested in what we're doing. We're seeing a lot of success there. I was reading this morning where these, quote, novel partnerships may even involve three and four different organizations, how they come together to, to kind of solve the problem of how do we really get at lowering healthcare costs and improve the quality and, you know, you get it to and the, you know, better consumer experience. And what I always like to add, like we've said a couple times here today, is how to then, in, in improving the well-being of the provider at yep. the end of the day. So um, I think you, you know, if you believe that, we'll see, which I do, there'll be multiple parties kind of coming together. I think it's easier when you have two um, versus just, I think there'll, there'll still, I think we'll see some people going um, public. There's a couple of IPOs coming out here in the next, probably a quarter or two. Um, I think we'll still see meta, you know, M&A activity of, of um, you know, uh, of organizations that want to grow, desire to grow, wanting access to gr these um, great companies that are being created. Some people, organizations will just choose to purchase them outright and embed them in their, yep. in organizations. And then we're beginning to see even more like private equity companies yeah. partnering with strategics be that payers or otherwise, to buy these high-growth companies and embed them. So it's it's I think you're it's that that's relatively new over the last couple of years, and and there could be more of that. So you know I think uh, there, like when we started the, the discussion off earlier, where, the, where there's 20% of a country's economy embedded, which almost 20% today, I think 18 or 19% of our economy is embedded within healthcare. There are better ways to, to do it, and and we're going to see lot you know new entrants. Not that you know you know Apple and Google and Facebook. None of these are new, but right. and they're all kind of trying to figure it out. And and there will be but there will be new entrants into the marketplace. And but I'm I'm still a huge believer. You have to be able to you know you know have relationships with doctors and care teams to affect healthcare. You're not going to do it straight up through technology, but you also need a highly tech-enabled solution to be successful. It just um, there's just it's just way too many things to expect to hand a physician a sheet of paper and say, oh hey, these 20 people are coming in today, you close these 62 care gaps, and you know that did, we're way way beyond that. It's just way too complicated nowadays. Yeah, you know I think it's really interesting the way that you talk about how unorthodox or non-healthcare companies are coming into healthcare. So that kind of leads to my final question of the day, which is a, a very open-ended one. Mm -hmm. um, what that? What did we not talk about today that you think is going to play a huge part in 2020? I think we, the, kind of that last question you asked, but I think there will be lots of, well, you know, call them innovative, call them novel, call them unorthodox partnerships. I, I just, I think we. It's just that's that's healthcare today, and it's the build, buyer purchase, and I think there there will be a little bit of all that going on, but that will lead to you know um, different organizations that are um, really good at doing certain things, um, partnering with others. Yeah. You know, you know, the, you know, some of them will be maybe it's an out, outright M and A, but otherwise it'll be just you know. Uh, they'll be partnering to do what they do well. Even we talk about it a lot here. Should we build, buy, or purchase? And and that's we kind of look at those and the big decisions we make. I think um, earlier in the discussion you talked about transparency and um, interoperability, and I would even say consumerism. Kind of all those are really tied together. I 
we um, the consumer is paying more first dollar than ever before. Um, they're asking to be held accountable to do getting to getting um, certain wellness visits and you know doing um, certain generics. Uh, you know th- those things. I guess being more cost effective and being held accountable to do so. And that that's unfortunately high deductible plans is the way payers have kind of tackled it. Um, I think there'll be, I think transparency will become a factor. Uh, You know, it may not be in the next 12 months, but I do believe, um, you know, whether, are we going to be regulated into it or are we going to choose to, I think some first movers will have a, will have some advantages there. And, And I think the just continued, you know, we talked about meeting the, you know, consumer where they want to be met. Uh, things like virtual visits, and we're, we, we're, you know, I think we did 17,000 last year. More providers are are um, are getting more comfortable, and it is an inertia. I believe, you know, the more if you do a few, um, it's different. And um, but if we don't do that, and our and our and, and and embrace that, and continue to kind of get people comfortable with it, everybody is after the primary care patient. Be that a health hub, be that a local health system. Be that some of these disruptors, you know, I'm going to get all my health care on an app, and that works pretty good when you're, when you're um, young and healthy. I, um, but we, you know, I think just it's proven our providers that have embraced it have 70% of the virtual visits they're doing is about chronic conditions. I would have never anticipated that. I think that's awesome because that works in a fee-for-service environment because our providers are paid to do do that as well as especially as we move to risk. Boy, the you know that, you know somebody that's kind of thinking, oh, I don't, I'm not feeling well today, or my I've gained a little bit of weight. And I'm, a, you know, I've got congestive heart failure. We can see that virtually and keep them out of the ER. Yeah. Nobody wants to go to the ER or the hospital if we and and then we can make a, uh, you know, uh, the next day appointment or even the same day appointment to see them. I mean, all that, and we're building great relationships downstream, and yeah. or that parent that's got kids and. You know, for, don't want to take the kids out of school, and they need to see the pediatrician, but it's not. It doesn't have to be face to face, and get in traffic or, or whatever. You know, it's just all those are. The consumer is going to expect more and more and more of that, and I think we're better positioned to do that than most. And we've, we think um, it's 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 up to us and up to some of the even our physicians and care teams that are embracing that and actually, um, you know, and figuring out how that works within their workflow to work with other providers to kind of get more comfortable with it. So I, I think we have to embrace those type things. And I think we'll, we will, you know, we will by far be, you know, if we think that to be innovative, I think that is, you know, then the, you know, some of the others that are out there, but we, we have to embrace those things to kind of move along. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, how do we make care of care more affordable? How do we continue to improve quality, or, or and even sometimes just prove the great quality we're doing, exactly. and um, give a you know that consumer what they sometimes maybe even not what they think they want, but what they deserve, yeah. and and then at the same time reward the provider. And when I talk about provider well-being, it's a combination of financial, it's a combination of work-life balance. But at the end of the day, huge believer is. Doctors and care nurses and care teams got in. It's just they got in healthcare to see the patient and do great things. And you know, if we can give them that little bit of extra time every day to do so, mm-hmm. I think that affordability, consumer experience, and quality comes with that. So that's what we'll, that's what we're going to be focused on.
Awesome. I'm 100% there with you, and I look forward to talking with you in a year from now and and recapping and see what happens uh, and what surprises there were in healthcare of 2020. So, Sean, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning into The Break Room. Visit our blog, Informed, for related content, and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook so you never miss an episode. That's all for today. See you next time on The Break Room.